Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent, uh, Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve. How are you? Hey, good, 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 mate. How are you? I'm very well. I was, uh, I was just chuckling to myself before we started recording because I've got another excellent uh, anecdote to kick <laughs> off today. It's, uh, I promise it's not about uh, Jeffrey Boycott this time. Oh, not the bold and bloody cricket club again, is it? <laughs> well, no, although in saying that, there is a bit of an Anglo uh, theme to it. So I guess here's, here's my anecdote. So today's um, subject is does economics help you to invest? So just a personal or real life experience story. So, as you know, Pops had um, a, quite a serious farming accident a couple of years ago. But so I've been spending a lot of time with Pops over the last couple of years. Um, also managed to uh, break a hip, so he's, he's going well on the uh, personal personal injury stuff at the moment. A typical bloke doesn't know when to stop. So uh, we've been trying to learn from him in recent years to diversify. We've been doing a bit of investing in farmland and cropland. And um, so he's a guy who left school when he was, I think, 15. He got a job as a farmhand just to learn how farming works. And then eventually, many years later, brought his own uh, small holding, probably, you know, run his own uh, farm business for about 40 years. And I guess, you know, he was a guy who's just basically very prudent, typical uh, prudent uh, person from that part of the world. Uh, I I was going to say tight-fisted, but that's the wrong word. Uh, But, you know, essentially... You know, he built his own house with his own hands and he owns more, I guess, farmland than I ever will. Uh, but here's the thing. So he, he wouldn't know the first thing about economic theory, but if you take him to a field, like we went to one the other day and he was like, well, that's 8.2 acres. The year, the rental yield will be X, the crop yield will be Y, the insurance will be Z. And, you know, he knows about hedging both both in the in the literal sense and the figurative sense. But if you... You know, in short, he's a bloody clever bloke and he's found a way to make it all work, but he's not trained in economics. And if I started talking to him about uh, Keynes or you know, MMT, he literally wouldn't know what I was talking about. So I guess that brings it back to the question, uh, does having knowledge of economics help you in any way, shape or form in terms of becoming a better investor? Or do you just need to find a way to make something work or, or find a system that works for you and just go with it? Yeah, uh, interesting question. Um, father-in-law's story reminds me of, uh, oh, what's the investor's name? Oh, it, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, and he said, you know, if you spend seven minutes on, you know, econo- on macroeconomics, then, you know, you've wasted three minutes or something like Peter that. Lynch. Peter Lynch, that's it. Yeah, thank you. It's an interesting question. The reason why we sort of thought we'd talk about it is because there's this underlying assumption that, stock markets and economies are connected 
and you sort of think, well, of course, you know, the stock market's full of companies and companies do, do economics. When you actually dig deep into it, you sort of see that there's actually a, a slight negative correlation, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit further. But even just on the this stuff about GDP growth levels, you know, like, oh, we've had 4% growth, oh, that's good, you know, oh, we've had 1% growth, oh, that's terrible. Um, and I'm not arguing that it isn't good or it isn't bad, but the question you want to ask yourself as an investor is, well, yeah, is it good for my stock market returns? You know, for example, if you go back and have a look at the years, and I'm going to I'm going to read these figures out because they're a bit hard to remember. In 2008, the GDP fell roughly around three percent. The market fell about forty percent. In 2009, GDP was basically zero, but the market went up about thirty-five or forty percent and a rebound. Um, in 2000, which is what I sort of always find interesting, is the GDP in 2000 was 3% and the market fell 9%. 2001, there was no GDP, the market fell 12. And in 2002, the GDP was 2% and the market went down 22. Now, there's obviously finer arguments to it, but in a broader perspective, you could say, well, hang on, there's no correlation between the stock market and what happens in the um, economy. Um, As you would know, the valuations in those periods were either extremely high or extremely low. So if you look at the last boom, you know, in 2009 when the market, in, in eight when the market crashed and 2009 when it took off, we know the CAPE ratio was really low. The economy's been below average for the best part of 11 to 12 years, you know, in terms of GDP growth. But the market's gone up about 330%. So if you if you sort of said, oh look, I'm I'm not investing a lot of money. Why? Oh, because the economy's not doing very well. Then you've you'd actually have missed out on you know a substantial portion of the gains. That's the key point, isn't it? I mean, it, nobody uh, could disagree that over the long run, by which I mean a period of decades, then a strong booming economy is clearly going to be reflected in profits and yeah. um, as as productivity increases and population increases, then that's going to be ultimately reflected in earnings and um, higher stock markets. So I guess, the, uh, as you pointed out, though, that that sort of implies, you know, a steady, smooth period of growth, maybe, you know, X percent per annum. Um, and if GDP growth maybe averages maybe 3% or something through the cycle, but the returns on stocks, and you only have to look at a quilt of returns, and you'll see that an average return of 7% over 15 years might incorporate um, a negative 50% and a, and a plus 80%. You know, So there, maybe over the very long run, there might be some correlations, but to base an investment strategy on you know, the, the outlook for GDP over the next year or two, you know, and that's the same in real estate. You know, People say, oh, you know, I don't want to buy property in Perth because the, the outlook for uh, state final demand is only you know two and a half percent. Is well, if anyone can show me a correlation between uh, bet- a close correlation between the the metrics, I'd be very impressed because I I suspect it's much more driven by expectations and also just how much are people prepared to pay because ultimately the return on any investment must be determined by the price you pay. It's a it's always a an interesting one and a. You know, like I said at the front, there's an assumption between economics and the markets. And 
look, what we've sort of talked about in previous podcasts in this series is this idea about theory versus reality. We don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis and we're sort of much more in the, the capital growth or the Kelly criterion sort of framework that we use to invest. And the thing that I always come back to is you've always got to go and look at the assumptions behind any theory. And when you look at economics, it doesn't, this was a shock to me when I read this years ago that, you know, this, that the economic theory doesn't account for the finance sector. And so the finance sector was always just like, oh, yeah, banks, yeah, well, you don't need to count banks because all they do is just, you know, Pete walks in and says, can I have a loan? And Steve, the manager, says, yeah, Pete, here's your 100 bucks," and you go off and, you know, away you go. So we don't need to talk about that. When in actual fact, as you know, in the last 30 to 40 years, the finance sector is the critical sector of the economy and there's actually, you know, a pretty strong argument that, the stock market dictates the economy rather than or reflects the economy rather than the economy reflects the stock market. Yeah, look, and um, I mean, as we've talked about previously, every year come 1 January, there'll be a range of forecasts for the year ahead. And uh, you've made me think of a really important point there, and that's that those, um, those predictions often say something along the lines of uh, we expect the stock market to go up 8 to 10% because the outlook for the economy is brightening, uh, you know, and we expect the economy to, to grow by 3% or whatever it may be. But if you just take one step back from that and just say, okay, but look at you know, look at the history of stock markets um, and then then try and tie it back to an annual, uh, an annual GDP figure, and that just would completely blow things out of the water. And I guess this was Taleb's point, is that you get a lot of economists or people who aren't actually – investing in the real world and and saying, well, you know, they, they might say, well, GDP is going to grow 3% and therefore you can pencil in 10% returns for stocks. But it, back in the real world, the efficient markets, uh, well, they don't operate in that way. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's that's where the, the difference between the theory and the reality can be so wide as to pretty much render those those kind of forecasts uh, meaningless. Yeah, and the, the thing that sort of, I suppose... <laughs> gives me great joy, it also annoys the bloody hell out of me, is that no one ever picks them up on it. I won't talk about The Economist I always mention because (laughs) (laughs) I give him a thrashing. We'll put them in the the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll send secret signals. Um, But, you know, the thing, but that's the thing that annoys me. And it, it, it doesn't annoy me that they're wrong. I don't mind that. You know, God knows I've been wrong plenty of times. The thing that annoys me is that, they speak with an authority that people listen to and sort of assume that, oh, well, if, if you know, Steve Moriarty said the economy is going to grow at 3%, well, it's probably a good idea to go and buy a property and plunge into stocks rather than saying, well, you know, Steve Moriarty's been wrong for the last 20 years. Um, why would we listen to Steve Moriarty? Um, and they keep dragging out the same economists. And so... What it sort of shows you in the broader picture is, first of all, prediction is really difficult, but the second part is that markets and economies can go in completely different directions. And to give you a historical example, I remember in the 80s, we might have talked about this in a previous podcast, but I remember when they deregulated and they privatised and they were thrashing labour unions, 
all that sort of stuff. And there was this, you know, um, ABC, you know, dot com or something lays off, you know, 50,000 staff worldwide and the stock price would go through the bloody roof. And the reason why was because the companies were bloated and really, really unproductive. And so the, the stockholders were saying, well, yeah, yeah, look, I know that's bad for the economy because they'll be more unemployed, but I'm not betting on the whole economy. I'm betting on, you know, ABC Proprietary Limited and for ABC Proprietary Limited doing more with less people, i.e. being productive, is really where the money, you know, that's where you make your money. What I wanted to tie it into there, Steve, is um, so you've got this concept of the three wells. The concept of the three wells is you, you think of your your money in three buckets. So you've got your short-term funds to cover uh, the next 12 months, so your living costs, and then you've got your long-term or legacy bucket. That's your well three. But often what people are missing is that middle bucket, well two, uh, for lifestyle uh, costs maybe over the next two to five years. And um, uh, this is where... We come back to a few of the concepts on mispricing. Um, so people, you know, we often reference uh, value investors like Buffett, who have, you know, he's a Kelly investor. So what he essentially looks for is investments that are cheap, because if you buy something when it's cheap, you can compound your wealth. You can you can literally multiply your wealth much more quickly. So in terms of the well two strategy, um, what we're often talking about there is actually looking for. Um, in some instances, the most hated stock markets because um, you can try and knock yourself out predicting what GDP will do or interest rates or deficits. And let's let's take a real life example of um, a, a big investment that um, you've uh, seen some spectacular results on uh, when uh, Russia went into uh, had the issue with sanctions some years ago. Um, everybody was um, saying, you know, that the outlook for Russia is terrible, and from an economic perspective. There were real world impacts there, uh, but then look at the rebound in stocks. I think it, Russia did fifty five percent in twenty sixteen, and then it did another fifty percent in twenty nineteen. And that, that's a real world example of where if you buy something when it's really cheap, big dividend um, income over time, but also capital growth, then you can actually multiply your wealth. I think um, we used on a on a podcast um, a while back. Uh, Greece is another example uh, where. Everyone was saying a couple of years ago, uh, you know, 22% unemployment and, and the stock market crashed essentially. And then it did, it was like the second top performer with 44%. And when you when you look at, uh, you know, for the Bloomberg article explaining why the stock market is booming, you know, you read through the article, there's no reason. The, the unemployment rate is still 20%. It's just that people have realized it's very cheap. Um, as we mentioned, I think last week, um, energy in 2020, you know, the oil price crashed and energy, you know, was the absolute worst performer for three years in a row and for five of the past six years. And of course, when everyone's down on energy, that's where the mispricing is. You've got an opportunity to buy with high income expectations and you'll get capital growth over the coming decade. Uh, I just wanted to throw in one extra piece of the puzzle here. And that's a principle you talk about called the risk hierarchy. So, in Russia's case, you were confident enough to uh, pick out some of the big systemic companies, especially in the resources or commodity space. But um, you don't have to be a stock picker. You can buy an ETF that owns the whole country's stock market if that's what you want. And uh, 
I read an article recently called uh, Bubble or Cycle by Morgan Housel. I think he wrote it a few years ago. And sometimes it's pretty difficult to know what is a bubble and what is a cycle. Um, His definition is, well, if something subsequently goes on to future all-time highs, it was probably a cycle, not a bubble. And that's where ETFs can really help because there's always a concern with companies where where the price crashes that, well, maybe it's a zero, but not so much if you're buying an ETF that owns the, the whole Russian stock market or the whole energy sector. So a whole load of ideas for you there, Steve. Sorry for the brain dump. Can you make any sense of all that for me? Yeah, but it's just what true what you say, Pete. It always gets back to the the same sort of thing, which is the mispricing. This is what leading into our, our sort of next little chat about a really interesting paper that um, showed that the correlation between stock market returns and the uh, GDP growth was uh, negative. And you sort of say, oh, well, okay, look, I could take a, an idea that there's not that strong a correlation, but surely there's a correlation. And what he sort of found out was, which makes complete sense, you think about when things are improving, people tend to overpay for things. And, you know, you and I were talking about this before, just before in the property market, and the same thing happens in the stock market. You know, you people rush in and they don't value the company. What they do is they focus again on this growth aspect and sort of say, oh, well, if, you know, Tesla grows at, you know, 40% a year, in 10 years it'll be worth, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And that may well be right, but you've got to look at it. You've got to look at that and say, is it actually mispriced as an investment? And it's sort of why you see Buffett hunting in recessions. You know, as you and I both know, he recently bought oil, uh, oil stocks, and he bought telecommunication stocks, which we've been talking about for a couple of years. And the reason why is simple, because that's where nobody else is fishing. And so that's where we'll get cheap stuff. Now, the economy may well be going badly, and that would be a valid argument in terms of oil. But the argument is, since we sort of talked about, sorry, I'm going to give ourselves a bit of a pat on the back here, but since we talked about oil, it's gone up about 50 or 60%. So the economy hasn't improved that much. And what I'm saying is, if you looked at the global economy, you still wouldn't be buying oil because you'd be going, well, you know, the demand's kind of there, but it's not really there. And so what we do in our well two strategy is you look at all the ugly places. And then so I sort of say to people, when you read the news, when you know, if you read about Russia or uh, Korea or Pakistan or Greece, as you mentioned before, when you read things are horrible, my mind as a sort of contrarian always goes, right, there might be a good time for an investment there because I know if I'm reading that, oh, things are going gangbusters in, you know, Thailand or Malaysia or somewhere, well, I've got a fair idea I'm not going to pick up anything that's actually cheap because you've got a little bit of a sort of mania thing going on and so you'll probably end up paying a higher price rather than paying a lower price. That's why the the well two strategy works quite effectively is because what you're doing is you're buying the awful stuff, you don't hang on to it forever, you know, we we go into the details in our course and then you you sort of rotate them. And so 
that's what you want to do in terms as an investor to make money, not sort of go, I'm an economic expert and I know what's happening on, you know, GDP growth rates. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in making money as an investor. Yeah, you've you've just uh, reminded me, uh, Steve, to to check on one of my investments that I made based on your own recommendation, actually, just in the uh, in the the country Pakistan, because some of the some of those emerging markets got absolutely battered. I was just looking at the the stock price on the ETF there, down at seventy two seventy two US cents uh, in uh, March last year, currently at a dollar fifteen. So when when you actually run the numbers, plus when you're getting double digit dividend yields as well and of course you know you can always make a uh, an economic argument for why the stock market crashed from uh, whatever it you know fell by well, i don't know 70 percent or something you know you, you can always understand there's an argument behind it but then you look at it as you said as a contrarian are, are yields really at that level are they going to be sustained or are people just going to realize that this is very cheap and it's, it's going to go back up and uh, well i guess the proof uh, is in the pudding there because over the past year it's gone up. Can't do the maths, but that's that's more than fifty percent. Plus you've got the uh, the strong income expectation over the decade ahead. So um, I think um, I've, I've read uh, just on the subject there um, a couple of things. One on forecasts. So um, the Reserve Bank has made an effort over years, uh, over the years, to include confidence intervals on its forecasts. So for GDP and unemployment. But as we saw in 2020, they can put all the confidence intervals they like, but there'll always be these fat tails or tail risk where, you know, something comes along like a pandemic and all of the forecasts can get in the bin, essentially. Um, So uh, that is one thing um, you can really try and knock yourself out predicting what the economy is going to do. But uh, something will come along and throw all of those predictions out of kilter. Hence the the importance of focusing on simply buying stuff that is cheap uh, on a contrarian basis. Um, and uh, there are some academic papers I've read on the correlation between budget deficits and stocks or budget surpluses and stocks. And the same can apply to interest rates. And it, it's interesting, you, you read back some of these um, analyses of you know, stock market returns under various uh, presidents and uh, Clinton oversaw a huge um, stock market boom and and indeed the economy was booming, but then tried to run a, um, a surplus for a number of years and then the stock market absolutely crashed, which I suppose uh, adds further weight to your points uh, last week on MMT and the importance of... Yeah, I'll you over. it absolutely underscores the point but um but i think the the issue there is like um clearly deficits can be good for stocks um even though the national debt might increase there's more money flowing around and that increases earnings expectations i think the problem is though in real time if you're trying to predict um you know who's going to win an election what kind of uh, budget they're going to be running all of the different variables that could happen, like a global pandemic or, or a boom or a stimulus package, you know, you, you're really in real time. You are essentially guessing. And in, I mean, Clinton was um, the stock market um, returns were over two hundred percent through his administration, but that included included a huge boom and then a crash. So, I think um, we're seeing a lot of the same the same sort of thoughts at the moment about uh, low interest rates are good for stocks. And I can sort of say from a macro perspective, that may be uh, sort of all other things being equal, that may be true. 
I guess the issue is that doesn't explain why stocks are cheap in the UK and and all-time high expensive in the US or close to it. But also, if you go back through history, um, very often when interest rates have been at zero, that's been a period when stocks have had a, a terrible time. So, yeah, look, I think this this really just comes back to the importance of focusing on things like the earnings yield, the CAPE ratio, rather than trying to be too clever and sort of study all these academic papers on economic theory and what it all does to stocks. The thing that's worrying me at the moment is exactly what you're talking about, Pete, with the low interest rates so property will be fine. Okay, go back and look at the correlation between low interest rates and stocks. There are periods where it doesn't work. And we're going to talk about this in the future. Um, but, um, you know, when you run through that argument, it comes back from the assumptions about the Fed model. Um, and I'm not going to bore everybody with the Fed model here. Needless to say, though, that what you've got to, what you've got to do is, is get back under the, uh, the arguments to say, well, are they right and what are the assumptions? And if you think about it, Pete, you know, like every Monday, you know, as I just glance at Twitter, um, for the next eight hours, um, you see they bring out a list of economic indicators. You know, you've got the uh, the Producers Managers Index and we've got the GDP numbers and we've got this and we've, you've got like 25 or 30 indicators every week. That tells you absolutely nothing about the stock market. You know, so you can know every single data point about the economy but still be a rotten investor because you're not using the you're not using something that's actually correlated to stock market returns. Now, I don't I'm not arguing that it's not important because what I say to people is, you know, we know the signal and the noise, right? And the signal's the important bit. And people say, well, just ignore the noise. Okay, that's fine. At some point, the noise becomes a signal. And what I sort of say to people is if you hear this noise, and it's a party, and then it starts getting a bit louder and it's getting a bit louder, you then get a signal to say, hang on, there's something going on next door and it's really big. Oh, it's a party. And it's the same with the the, the, the economy. A lot of it is noise, but at some stage it becomes a signal. And where that happens is, is again through the business cycle, which is what Kate talks to you about and says things are really frothy, you know, I know it feels fantastic, but, it, you know, we look at history and it doesn't last forever. And so that's when you have a look at the moment where you're getting an earnings yield in the US market of about 2.5%. Now, you can get 2.1% for a 30-year bond. So, in other words, what I'm sort of saying to people is you're getting 0.4 extra over a safe, secure 30-year investment in a bond. And that's, a, you know, we, as you know, with the CAPE at 36, that's really asking a lot for an economic bounce back. And, I, you know, they're the things you've really sort of got to look at. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, this is, yeah, I think let's to, to tie it all together. Uh, and um, if, you're, if you're new to the podcast, I know we've got some uh, listeners in Europe and the States and Canada, and so we're, we've gone a little bit global in the last few weeks. So welcome if you're new. If you are, go back and listen to some of the earlier uh, podcasts. Sorry, that's not an instruction. Uh, I, I recommend that you uh, go and read or listen to um, some of our earlier podcasts and indeed read our book because what we 
what we've done here with Steve's IP is bring it together into what we call the eight timeless principles of investing. So there's four thought principles and four action principles. And the key thing about the eight principles is that they are proven through history and they work all the time in all asset classes and in in all cycles. So what we um, have essentially tabulated there is that a lot can happen with an economy. Um, You can't predict these things in the short term. But if you've got eight principles that you stick to through all cycles, you'll be just fine. The problem with um, taking this approach of saying, oh, well, you know, interest rates are low and therefore, you know, they're relatively, it's going to be better to be in stocks than have cash in the bank. Look, that might well work some of the time. The problem is that some of the time it won't. And that is really what the eight timeless principles are all about. It's about having a coherent investment strategy that always works. And those principles can stick with you for 10 years, 20 years, 200 years. They will always work. Just to uh, tie back to what we talked about there at the start, um, Steve, and that is that um, if you think about um, you know some of the most successful business owners, you know they didn't necessarily have MBAs in how to run a business. They just learned by observing what works in the real world, and then and just applied it. And I think that the same is actually true with stock market investing. Is um, you know, take some time to to learn about the history of stocks, and you'll see that there are some things that do work all of the time. You know, try and observe the real world. Don't get too lost in economic theory because while it might sound good on paper, uh, something will come along and broadside you, and it won't work. And then you can undo an awful lot of good work by doing that. You know, we always spend a bit of time quoting Uncle Warren Buffett, um, and he said, you know, if you he talks about this on the the micro level in terms of uh, companies, you know, and he says, look, and, and this is a really, really seriously underplayed point from Buffett, growth is only good if it adds value. That's that's a really seriously important point. And what does that mean? You know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. What he's saying is if, if something's growing, that's fine. But are you going to get value out of it? And if you're overpaying for that growth, then you won't get value out of it. And that is often what happens at the micro level in a a company. We pay too much for growth companies and then they fail. And it happens at the aggregate level as well, right? And so, again, what happens is you get a, a booming economy, everybody piles into the stock market, the stock market becomes overvalued based on the belief that, you know, we're all barreling down and having a great time with economic growth or uh, stocks are booming or property markets booming. And what you find is that the, and again, we talk about this in our course in this capital cycle theory stuff, you know, where everybody rushes in with a big pile of money. It turns out that half of it gets wasted and there's, you know, there's loads of debt, there's too much supply, the, the, the industry crashes it sorts itself out and then it grows again. And the best time to actually invest in that industry, like we've done with oil, is when it's really ugly, when everybody's invested too much and then we've had to sort out, you know, who's left on the playing field. And Buffett is sort of talking about that in terms of growth. And if you extrapolate that out to the whole economy, what you say is, gee, um, you know, Russia looks awful um, and Turkey looks awful and Pakistan look awful, oh, God, you know, who'd want to invest there? That's really awful. 
But when you look at the really booming places, they're always generally overpriced. And they're overpriced because, as you talked about before, there's a really big load of overconfidence there and people pay too much because, again, you know, geez, I'm giving Buffett a flogging, but he, you know, he says you pay a high price for a cheery consensus. And that's generally saying people pay too much based on, you know, things are fantastic and they're going to last forever. We know it doesn't. And on the flip side, we know when things crash, what we were talking about before, the government steps in like they did in 09 and said, right, oh, look, we're going to throw a lot of money at this joint and fix it all up, exactly like they did in COVID, and suddenly the place starts going gangbusters again. And it's a really, really out of a, a sort of confidence trick tied to economics, but it's, you know, the correlation is very weak, as we've said. It's a long-distance one. So uh, as Uncle Warren said, you should you should think of life as um, you having a, a punch card and you can only use 20 Warren Buffett quotes. And if you uh, if you thought about things that way, you might do these podcasts differently. So, <laughs> uh, so just to wrap it up for today on the half hour or just beyond, uh, does economics help you invest? Well, yes, up to a point, but there's a very big difference between the theory and the reality. As our old friend Niall Ferguson at Oxford said in a an economics book in the forward, there's all kinds of aspects of finance that even he has no idea about. Don't beat yourself up if you don't understand every last piece of economic theory that you read because um, you can find a systematic approach that works for you. You don't need to know every academic paper under the sun. So we'll wrap up this mini-series on economics in the next week or two. Uh, uh, thanks for joining today and uh, we'll see you next week. Cheers. See you, mate. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.